Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dave McRae, from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute, and today I'll be speaking to Nava Narania from the Institute for the Policy Analysis of Conflict, IPAC, about online extremism in Indonesia. Indonesian jihadis have had an online presence in one form or another for almost as long as they have been conducting attacks in democratic Indonesia. But online extremism has garnered particular attention worldwide since the emergence in 2013 of ISIS, the Islamic State in Iraq and Sham, which has made extensive use of online tools to spread its ideology, aid recruitment, and communicate news of the battlefield in Syria and Iraq. As part of her research on the online activities of pro-ISIS groups in Indonesia, Nava has been monitoring these groups' use of encrypted mobile chat apps like Telegram and WhatsApp for more than a year. Her research on this topic will be published in 2017 as part of the proceedings from this year's ANU Indonesia Update Digital Indonesia Conference. Nava, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Now, could I start by asking you, are these mobile encrypted chat apps, Telegram and WhatsApp, now the most important tools for pro-ISIS groups in Indonesia? Yes, uh, Telegram and WhatsApp have now become the most important communication tools uh, for uh, Indonesian jihadis, both the pro-ISIS and anti-ISIS, meaning pro-Al-Qaeda ones. Why? Because since 2014, Facebook and Twitter have banned thousands of extremist accounts on their platform. So now they've increasingly uh, moved to encrypted private chat apps. Now, I imagine a lot of listeners will be fairly familiar with WhatsApp. I think a lot of people would have that on their phone, but perhaps fewer with Telegram. Could you just tell us a little bit about what it is and how people can communicate using it? Telegram is a bit like WhatsApp, which everybody uses, I believe. Mm. But it, it uses encryption technology way before WhatsApp did. And then aside from the encryption technology, uh, Telegram also has a, an image of perceived uh, independence from, from government. Unlike WhatsApp, which, is, which has been bought by Facebook, and everyone knows um, Facebook is cooperating with the government. But the Telegram, its owner, the Russian brother, the Durov brothers, they were the founder of Russian version of Facebook. And they are famous, or maybe infamous, for um, turning down government's request for cooperation. So they refuse to give out the details of Russian opponents' accounts, for example. And, uh, and they've been doing a lot of this um, resistance and the champion of privacy rights. How are pro-ISIS groups using Telegram, uh, or what, well, Telegram in particular, perhaps, in, in Indonesia? They're still using Facebook and Twitter, but the way they use Telegram or other private chat apps is different from when they used Twitter three years ago. For example, on Twitter they 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 posted more about propaganda, you know, good things about ISIS, its strength, its military strength, its welfare programs, and all those. But in in chat apps, they're more likely to talk about personal topics. So it's really just like normal people talking about their daily stuff. Like if if you if you have a family group or a you know, classmates group, it's the same way as, they, as these extremists use Telegram. They talk about what they're up to, their kids, their family, their personal problems, all those mundane things. In fact, uh, my research shows that the top two topics for both men and women are personal topic and recruitment. Recruitment is not as terrible as as you imagine. It's, it's really just you know introducing friends to one another, connecting groups, or even meeting up. So I mean, this sort of communication is taking place in 
semi-public or public chat forums? How, how many people are, are typically in these forums among the, the pro-ISIS groups? The normal group in Telegram has maximum of 200 members. So it could be from between dozens to uh, 200. But there's also a super group which can have up to 5,000 members, if I'm not mistaken. Or if uh, 10,000, actually. In groups where people are discussing their personal issues, how many people tend to be in those sort of groups? Between 100 and 600. How do users of these groups trust that the information that they're sharing is only for like-minded people? Obviously, the, the smaller the group, the more likely they're talking about more personal stuff. The bigger group, they're usually talking about uh, talking about those propaganda, like copying and pasting article, but not so much about personal stuff. And the smaller group, they trust each other because they have a vetting mechanism. So they only add members that is known to the admin or at least one of the group members in person. How do these chat groups start up on, on an app like Telegram? I mean, who tends to get them going and then what sort of people come in as the early members? How, how, how do they form? It usually starts offline. So they have meetings at the mosque or at study groups. So it usually starts casually as fellow members of one study group creating an online chat group just to keep in touch with one another. But over time, the membership broadens to include members from other study groups, other cities or even other countries. So the online groups in Indonesia for the extremists, they almost always have the offline element. And I mean, are these groups kind of peer-to-peer -peer contact or are they based around, say, a particular preacher at, at a mosque where these kind of extremist discussion groups are taking place? There are different kinds. So sometimes it's the Ustad that asks the members to form a chat group to keep um, Silaturahim, to keep the Islamic Brotherhood. But sometimes it's the group members themselves that initiate the group. And also, other than this type of peer-to-peer -peer recruitment, there is also the top-down recruitment, but this is still rare. So for example, Baharun Naim, the Indonesian fighter in Syria, this, uh, he's famous uh, for recruiting jihadis back home and other countries in Southeast Asia. So with Baharun Naim, what happened is that he would recruit people from the broader groups with the assistance of his friend back in Indonesia, they would form really very, very small groups, something like with less than 10 members. And in that small group, they only include people that they really trust and they have known each other for a while and also which they know that they have skills, mm. ball making or other, other skills. And in this group, Naim would give them more detailed instructions about bomb making and they communicate about plotting, uh, planning the target and uh, other things. What about the other type of group you mentioned that form up sort of around a discussion group in a mosque? How many of the members do you think would know each other in those groups and how wide does their geographic scope become? Some of them know each other pretty well offline. Um, but some of them, even in the same city, say Poso, they might not know each other before they join the group. So it really varied. And the uh, geographical spread is, it's not just Indonesia. I mean, the, the group membership also includes people from Southeast Asia, Indonesian migrant workers in East Asia, such as Hong Kong, Taiwan, Korea, and also in Gulf countries. When we talk about the people in these 
pro-ISIS chat groups. Are they essentially sympathizers? Are they people who might become directly involved in pro-ISIS operations? What sort of people are they? Most of them are sympathizers, but many of them have been involved in low-level activities such as giving logistic support or even just um, donation for the families of terrorist inmates and also slain terrorists. Most of them would not be involved in the violence action, mm. but they're involved in you know, providing some sort of a social security system for the whole group, okay, for the sure. whole community. I find it really interesting that you're saying even in the most clandestine of these groups, there needs to have been some face-to-face -face contact, uh, people knowing each other to get them started. Over time, do these online chat groups and chat apps kind of replace face-to-face -face contact or is that still a really important part of the extremist community and extremist activity? For now, face-to-face -face contact is still really important, especially if you're talking about planning an attack. In saying that, I think this, even this online chat, because they, you know, they chat for 24 hours, for seven days, and also because usually many of them don't have many friends in real life because they're being isolated from their community, especially if the women are wearing full-on niqab. So they, they find true friends in these online groups and they become really close. Some of them have joined up in business, business partnership. Uh, some of them have gone from online friendship to marriage. Also, uh, for the women, it could be that you know, the first wife would find a second wife from the group and, and to introduce her to her husband. So the kind of online sense of community they established then has real world consequences yes. as well. And more broadly, uh, pro-ISIS groups gaining new capabilities because they have these mobile chat apps available to them? They don't necessarily get new capabilities from, from the online materials. What, I'm, what I've been observing from both the private chat apps and social media is that they mostly function as a recruitment um, tool. So it broadens the membership, it could strengthen the network, but not as a virtual ground. Because if you want to have real skill, you still need real training camp. And um, that's been difficult. I mean, the, the police has done a pretty good job at disrupting this um, online training, such as the one in Aceh in 2010 and the Santoso training camp. So th there's been examples of how, like that, that met an attacker in, was it end of August? So this guy, very young, tried to bomb a church in Medan, but the bomb failed to blow up because, you know, he learned it from the internet, not okay. from the real training. So it's just one example. When you speak about recruitment, could you talk us through that a bit? Are we talking about people who weren't really radicalized at all becoming radicalized? Uh, are we talking about people who already had a fairly ver radicalized view of things moving to different roles? what sort of recruitment is taking place on these mobile chat apps? Most of the people who join this online community would have had some kind of exposure to um, radical ideology. But the kind of recruitment that's happening is more of a, you know, one thing is people um, have their ideology being reinforced through this friendship and this group. And also they, they could connect people, for example, people in, in Indonesia, to the contact person in Syria that would help them cross the border from Turkey to Syria. Mm. So that, that's the kind of recruitment, it's more of a broadening the network and introducing, internationalizing local networks. I mean, you mentioned it can help 
people to find their way into Syria because to get into Syria you need a a contact there. Can you give other examples of how it's brought different networks together through these apps? Let's take the example of Indonesian migrant workers in East Asia. These are all women and they've been used as cash cows by jihadis. In December 2015, one guy was arrested in West Java for a bomb plot. And it turned out that his wife in Hong Kong was funding the plot. So she sent 700 US dollars to, to finance the plot. Another example is when an Indonesian former policeman, he tried to get to Syria. He went via Hong Kong, um, where he was met by some of these um, migrant workers. And then when he got to the Turkish borders, it turned out that the person who was supposed to pick him up never showed up. So he asked for help in one of the telegram groups. Hmm. And then one woman in East Asia, one of the migrant workers, put him in touch with this Afghan woman in Syria who then sent someone to smuggle him into Syria. We've focused here on pro-ISIS groups, but you mentioned the groups that oppose ISIS that are in favour of Al-Qaeda in Syria also use these mobile chat apps. Are there big differences in the way that pro-ISIS and anti-ISIS groups are, are using online tools like WhatsApp and Telegram? As far as I know, the anti-ISIS group, the pro-Al-Qaeda one, they are still very prolific on Facebook and also Instagram, which the ISIS people don't really use as much. So why do you think there's that difference in the platforms they're using? One thing is that the the anti-ISIS people, their postings are in general less sensitive than, than the, the ISIS ones, so they're less likely to get banned unless they post really you know, violent or graphic videos. But in general, they are busier with countering ISIS ideology. So Mm. they actually have been a partner for the government to counter ISIS ideology, both in prison and outside. These are the pro-Qaeda groups. Yeah, yeah. They have websites. These are news websites like Kibla.net and Mukawama, um, which expose ISIS brutality and also rebut all their, their arguments. For example, when they burned the, the Jordanian pilot, the, these pro-Al-Qaeda people posted articles and even translated articles from uh, Middle Eastern clerics to counter those um, methods. So it sounds like these pro-Al-Qaeda groups are trying to reach a broader audience, whereas the pro-ISIS groups are trying to communicate yes. within their own community. And, and they feel that they are being monitored more by the government, so they went clandestine and they, they use the, the more private communication. I mean, still, it, it's surprising sort of to a casual observer that the government could be partnering with pro-Al-Qaeda groups. I mean, presumably, there's a lot of things Al-Qaeda is getting into that the Indonesian government does, does not really approve of. How, how is there enough common ground to cooperate? One of the most effective ways of deradicalization in prison um, turned out to be the, the, the engagement with so-called uh, cooperative inmates. Hmm. So these are usually anti-ISIS and um, although they still agree on jihad, they think Indonesia is not the right place for jihad. They said Indonesia is the place for um, religious outreach, for da'wah. If you want to go jihad in the sense of fighting, go to the conflict areas like Syria, Palestine or the Philippines, but not in Indonesia. So this is actually the main reason why the government is willing to enlist their help.
Okay, so it's kind of a marriage of convenience because they don't see Indonesia as a legitimate battlefield, whatever their views on Syria, yes. uh, whereas the pro-ISIS groups will be willing to perpetrate violence in either place? Yeah, yeah. So basically you're saying pro-Al-Qaeda groups feel under less scrutiny from the government. One of their priorities is to counter ISIS ideology, so they're using more public platforms like Facebook and Instagram, whereas the pro-ISIS groups feel under scrutiny, uh, they're mainly trying to communicate with their own community, so they're on mobile chat apps like Telegram and WhatsApp. I mean, when you have pro-ISIS groups using mobile chat apps, are they mainly talking about things happening in Syria and Iraq, or do they also talk about developments in Indonesia? As I said, they mostly talk about personal issues, personal mm. stuff, just regular chat. But in terms of the news update, they talk both actually. I, I haven't really done a quantitative analysis of you know the, the, the comparison between domestic or Syria related events. But I, I think they're talking about both the Syria and but also it depends on the timing as well. The content uh, of, of the news update depends on the uh, daily context. For example, yesterday they were talking about how ISIS retook uh, Palmyra. But during the Jakarta rally, there was the no the November fourth uh, and the December rally. These are rallies about the blasphemy accusations made against Jakarta Governor yes. Ahok for saying that people had used uh, Al Maida fifty one to deceive them into not voting for it. Yeah. So yeah. during those rallies, all they talked about was the domestic issues of how Ahok was an infidel, of how Jokowi was protecting him and whether it was allowed to participate in a demonstration. Why is that AHOC case of interest to these pro-ISIS groups? When the science showed that you know many people supported this rally, they wanted to go, so the, the, the pro-ISIS groups saw a potential to exploit this conflict to create a riot or um, to start a fight between the Muslims and the police, which would make the police look bad. In their scenario. At that time they were using the chat apps to try to instigate violence. So for example they used this particular public channel to give almost hourly update on, 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 the, on the rally. So for example they said in that evening when the most of the protesters have they were gone but some of them were burning some vehicle in front of the presidential palace when that was happening, that the chat groups discussed actively about this particular event. So they were saying, oh, you know, this is where the police thought their guns. So um, why don't you steal it from them? Oh, oh there is a, there's another riot in East Jakarta. So just go there and try to take advantage of it. Were there any real world effects around the protest back at the beginning of November? There was an impact in the sense that some people did go to the location that was shown by the public channel, but they failed to exploit it. So that's why um, af after that rally, the police arrested nine people. These are pro-ISIS people who were allegedly involved in the rally. If we were to kind of, I guess, try to take a bird's eye view of everything you've discussed so far, you're saying a lot of the communication in these chat groups is just about personal matters between people who feel ostracized from mainstream Indonesian society. But on the other hand, you know, you've also had efforts to instigate violence, uh, assisting people to get into Syria, some funding arranged for, for an attempted attack in Indonesia, and a number of activities that 
would be a very direct concern to authorities. How great is the ability of Indonesian authorities to monitor what's going on via these mobile chat apps and, and what agencies are, are attempting to do that? I think that the government, the police, has been trying to get more information from the group. We can see examples, for example, on the 17th of August, the Independence Day, just last um, August, the, the, the police managed to foil this plan of some pro-ISIS men to hold a military training or even just some physical training uh, on top of a mountain in central Java. At least according to the media report, that was because the plan for that training was advertised on, on a telegram group. So that, I think that shows that the, the police is not just you know sitting around and doing nothing, they are trying to do something. What are the various things that the Indonesian police or other government agencies uh, have done to try to curb the online activities of pro-ISIS groups? First of all, I think it was last year they tried to ban 20-something websites. This was the National um, Counterterrorism Agency, BNPT, they, they banned 20-plus websites which they accuse of being extremists but actually not all of them were violent extremists some of them were conservative or salafi websites so in the end it only um, created a backlash from muslim groups they were saying that oh government is anti-islam so you want the government would want to avoid this kind of policies in terms of private chat groups i think monitoring is is better and it seems that that's what the police and the authorities have been trying to do just to monitor and then investigate further before making the arrest. Do you think the Indonesian police and other agencies like the National Counterterrorism Agency are paying enough attention to pro-ISIS groups' online activities? I think it's really important to monitor these groups because they are a gold mine of information. There is a lot that they could learn from these groups. And I think they could do better in monitoring now we don't know if they're able to monitor the whole groups because there's so many of them. How many groups are we talking? We're talking about hundreds of groups and maybe thousands of public channels. So if they could specify or maybe have a more targeted approach of which groups are more worthy of you know, further monitoring than others, then that would be better. You mentioned, you know, apart from straight monitoring, trying to detect plans and attacks, that the police have been partnering with pro-Al-Qaeda groups in kind of counter-narrative work. Could you tell us a bit more about that? And are there other counter-narrative activities sort of underway? The cooperation with pro-Al-Qaeda extremists, they mostly happen within the prison. The police or the prison staff would facilitate discussion between the pro-Al-Qaeda inmates who are in general more cooperative in the sense that, you know, that they're more willing to participate in social activities in the prison and in the government deradicalization program, whereas the pro-ISIS inmates don't even want to pray at the prison mosque because they consider it as an infidel mosque. Beyond what's happening in prison, are there broader efforts at generating counter-narratives? Um, yes, the government, the BNPT, the counter-terrorism agency, have been using former terrorists, for example, to give counter-narratives, to give their stories. Other NGOs have also promoted counter-narratives, but we don't know. There has not been any measurement of how effective these programs are, and uh, I, I doubt that um, it's, it's that effective in terms of turning people away from violence, because what, what the government has done in measuring this effectiveness is that they count the inmates 
and then they subtract over the number of recidivists. Mm. And so all those that have not been recidivists means they're successfully de-radicalized. <laughs> but, but I mean, there you're, it sounds like you're still talking about the prison population. Right. Is that where the main focus of counter-narrative efforts is? Right. So the band PT has this preventive deputy that do a lot of seminars and it's mostly just, you know, talking at hotels and it's mostly preaching to the choir, even even the efforts that's been done by um, big Muslim organizations like Nadarul Ulama and Muhammadiyah. It's mostly seminars to, to their own followers. It might be good in terms of preventing, you know, existing Muhammadiyah or NU members from joining from the terrorist groups, but I, I don't think it's been effective on the most vulnerable people. Mm, who who are those people? So people who are, who are in the process of radicalization, because these people usually block out information from non-jihadi groups or from their own friends. And and usually, at least based on the stories that, that have been shared on social media on, by extremists, is that they've been isolated or estranged from their family and their community when they um, started um, getting into extremist ideas or even extremist, extremist movement. So you need to reach out. So you need, the government, I think, needs to engage with the local leaders, more training for parents, and also have a hotline for parents who feel that their children are being radicalized or even planning to go to Syria. What could they do with that sort of information if they knew of cases where people were being radicalized? There's been a case of a family who tried to contact the police just just to give them a tip, you know, that their relatives are trying to go to Syria. But this family said it's been really difficult. They've been thrown from one department to another. They don't know exactly where they should go. And and in the end, the, the, their relatives left. And now there, there's nothing they could do. How should the government have handled an approach like that? I think that there should be at least a hotline for these groups, like one, what is it, one one organization or task force where the people could report, and then there could be more follow-up. So, for example, the deportees. There are two to three hundred deportees. There's these are Indonesians who tried to go to Syria but arrested in third country, either in Malaysia, Turkey, or other places, and then they were deported to Indonesia. What the government could do is just follow up on these deportees and see if we could get more data, but instead they just let them go. And there's no follow-up, there's no program for these deportees. And actually, if, if you want to intervene, this is the best time because these deportees, they've sold all their belongings to go to Syria. They're very weak, they've got no economic resources, no help. So um, they're most likely to go to, to go back to the old network. So if the government wants to intervene, this is um, deportees would be the best chance. You've mentioned extremists themselves uh, using a mix of face-to-face and online contact to undertake their activities. Everything you've described in terms of the government response using terrorist convicts or former terrorist convicts in prison holding seminars around the country, also large Islamic organizations holding seminars. It's all offline. Yes. Is there anything that the government or groups interested in preventing extremism could be doing online in addition to these offline activities? Yes, they could. What they have done so far is making videos, but I doubt how effective it would be. Now, I think counter-narrative is still important to be spread online so that Anytime someone wants to access information like a counter-argument to ISIS, it will be there and you have to make it very simple. 
Do you think the government are the right people to be doing that? No. You need more credible messengers for these counter narratives,、mm. and it's definitely not the government. But it also depends on the target. See, if if you talk about hardcore ISIS supporters, no matter whom they talk to, it's usually、um, very difficult. The moderate preachers they don't respect them. Salafi preachers they don't respect them as much. So former terrorists have worked in some cases. Because you know they shared an experience, but the former terrorists should be from the same group, not from their opponents. Regardless of who is articulating and formulating these messages, you said they need to be easy to find. How would you make them easy to find? I mean, could people spreading counter narratives also be using the same mobile chat apps that extremists are using, or, or do they need to do it differently? You could actually use social media platform like Facebook and Twitter. You can employ, you know, these、um, social media campaign strategies. How to make messages go viral? It usually comes from, you know, someone who's not really that, not always famous. Sometimes it, it's a girl from Banyuwangi or something. But the message is usually very personal and has an emotional side that could make people sympathize with it. So you can have personal stories of former terrorists. Or even people who almost join ISIS, but they change their mind. You know, you can share all these personal stories at least to prevent people who have not been as deep into the organization. Finally, you've described for us the way that extremists have shifted in their use of social media over time. That they were using Facebook and Twitter as their security concerns grew. They shifted onto these mobile chat apps. If you were to gaze into your crystal ball, do you have any thoughts on how we might see things evolve from here? I think we will see more and more recruitment through social media, and more cooperation between groups in different geographical locations happening over social media. When you say social media, you mean Facebook, Twitter, or also things like Telegram and WhatsApp? Facebook, Twitter, and and also private chat apps. Even、mm. more. Why do you say more recruitment through social media? In the case of Indonesia, it's actually still re- relatively easy for people to meet offline at mosques or at schools because there's no registration for ustad or mosque,、mm. so it's really、um, quite easy for them to meet up. But social media really,、um, especially for the younger people, they're very active online and they often meet friends or even their future husbands or wives online. So if you talk if you talk about the next generation of jihadis, there will be more uses of social media, and they might get smarter in it. They they use tools to conceal their IP address, for example, and、um, and why social media? Because it's simply very easy to use, very fast, and it's free. Nava, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today.、Uh, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks. That was Nava Naranya from the Institute for the Policy Analysis of Conflict (IPAC). Look out for a book chapter on online extremism next year. Or if you're interested in how prisoners use social media and deradicalisation efforts in Indonesia, check out IPAC's latest report on the topic, available online now. That wraps it up for the Talking Indonesia podcast for 2016. I'd like to take a moment now to thank all of our guests and listeners, and in particular to thank my co-host for this year, Dr. Ken Setiawan. Who won't be continuing on in 2017? Look out for an announcement of new co-hosts when the podcast returns in January. Until then, remember you can catch up on the entire archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog via iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. So until 2017, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.